1 Peter 5, 5 to 14. You'll find that on page 1017 in the Bibles provided. I invite you to listen along as I read this passage. And when I'm done, I'll say this is God's word. Join me to thank God by saying thanks be to God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Pop quiz. There is a group of Christians who are increasingly on the margins of their culture and society. They are pushed out from the spheres of influence, and as they live in the world, they feel mounting pressure to conform. Pressure to relapse into their old way of life. Pressure to affirm the narratives and the lifestyles that their culture upholds. As this group of Christians seeks to live well in the world, they are finding more and more that they don't quite belong anywhere in the world. They find that soon enough they will risk losing their jobs, losing their friends, losing their families, maybe even losing their lives itself. This group of Christians is mocked, degraded, excluded. People are beginning to say that they are too exclusive, too rigid. People are beginning to say that these Christians are even bigoted, self-righteous, condescending. The world around them has begun not just to tolerate them. The world around them has started to see this group of Christians as a threat. To see them as a threat to their progress, to their way of life, to their preferences. So pop quiz, friends. Who is the group of Christians that I'm describing? Well, you're right. It's the group of Christians living in Asia Minor some 2,000 years ago that Peter writes to. Now, although this description has begun begun to mirror our own experience, as a matter of fact, we started with this same pop quiz at the very beginning of our journey at 1 Peter. I wanted to test your memory. You see, Peter charts a way forward for these Christians he's writing to and for us as Christians in 2023. Now, while we are exiles in this world, sojourning to heaven, our hope is alive because our Savior is alive. So if you had to summarize Peter's path forward for you and for me as Christians living in exile, I think we might be able to summarize it in 1 Peter 5, verse 12, namely the second half of it. He says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That is the path forward. That you and I as Christians have received God's grace in Christ by the Spirit. That you and I already have been ransomed, purchased from our old way of living. That you and I have been called out of darkness into his marvelous life. That you and I have been given an eternal inheritance. 
that Jesus himself has borne our sins in his body on the tree. This is the grace of God that Peter has talked about, that you and I have already received when we have received Christ. And Peter is saying now the path forward is to stand firm in God's grace. So what does a life of standing firm in God's grace look like? I think Peter's instructions as he closes his letter help us. Peter says that a life characterized by standing firm in God's grace is characterized by four Christian virtues. It's virtues that you are familiar with, that you know. It's the virtues of humility, faith, hope, and love. Now, those virtues sound good and respectable on paper, don't they? But it's quite another thing to live out those virtues in real life. It reminds me of The Wizard of Oz. You remember when Dorothy first sees the yellow brick road? It's very exciting. It seems like such a clear and easy path. It's the yellow brick road all the way to the Emerald City. How could it be any easier? Well, little did she know, along the way, there would be falling houses, wicked witches, and those pesky flying monkeys, which really freaked me out when I was a kid. In other words, following Christ toward heaven, displaying the virtues of humility, faith, hope, and love, that is not an easy thing to do. We suffer along the way. But Peter clarifies to us once again that just as you and I have been saved by grace, so also you and I continue by grace. We didn't start off in our own strength or in our own faithfulness, and neither do we continue on in our own strength or in our own faithfulness. So here's how you might summarize the last section of 1 Peter. He's saying that how God calls us now to live might seem daunting, but take heart. God gives us all we need to endure suffering as we wait on him. So we're going to walk through 1 Peter 5, 6 to 14, noticing how God calls us to live and noticing how God gives us all that we need to live that way. With each imperative, there is an indicative. With each command, there is grace that precedes and follows that command. So as we journey on the hard road to heaven, we should live with humility. Humility is one of the marks of a life lived standing firm in God's grace. Look with me again at verses 6 and 7. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. The word therefore in verse six points us backwards. Peter has previously called us to to display humility toward one another. We can call this the horizontal direction of humility. He says that we should do this because of something that's true about God. He says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's quoting Proverbs three, verse 34. So really what he's saying is that those who hold in their hands their own goodness their own morality, their own righteousness can't receive from God. So what we do, what we must do to receive grace is come with the empty hands of humility. God opposing the proud, but giving grace to the humble also leads to another direction of humility, not just horizontal, but vertical. Notice in verse five, we are humble toward one another. And in verse six, we are humble under God. Friend, the Bible examines you and it examines me at this point here. The Bible asks us, do you place yourself above other people in any way? 
The Bible asks us, do you place yourself above God directly or indirectly, saying even functionally that you don't need him? God tells us here that the way to be lifted up is first to be bowed down. Now, I I want you to notice something. Did you notice that verse 6 and verse 7 are actually one sentence? They're actually one continuous sentence. Some English translations split it into two sentences, but I don't think that's quite right. Verse 7 is a continuation of verse 6. That word casting is what's called an instrumental participle. In other words, casting is how we humble ourselves. One way we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand is by casting all our anxieties on him. So I think the danger is, friends, when we quote verse 7 in isolation, we might risk oversimplifying the Bible. Biblical counselor Ed Welch puts it like this, that we can treat the Bible like a pill to take. You can imagine how you might write your own prescription to yourself. You might say, take 1 Peter 5, 7, two times a day for two weeks, and then your symptoms will be gone. Now, to clarify, just a nuance a little bit at this point, we should remember that the Bible teaches us that God has created us both body and soul. So what I'm saying is that your physical experience can truly affect your inner experience and vice versa. So if you don't believe me, just go a week without sleep and see how it affects your attitude and how it affects your mood. Right? Your physical experience can affect your inner experience. Physiological imbalances are real. God has created us body and soul. Now, while medicine can be relied on too heavily, while medicine can be relied on too quickly, I don't think medicine should be dismissed entirely either for something that's going on in our mind. However, really the point that I'm making here is that the Bible isn't just a self-help book for symptom relief. No. The Bible is much, something much greater than that. The Bible is how the living God reconciles us to himself through the person and work of his son. So if verses 6 and 7 are one sentence put together, it tells you that when you worry, something deeper might be going on. So if verse 6 and 7 go together, if one way to display your humility is by casting your anxieties on the Lord, then the opposite is also true, friend. That one way to display your pride is by keeping your anxieties from the Lord. Does that make sense? Have you considered that your worry can actually be a form of pride? It could be that you persistently worry because you want to be the one who controls every outcome in your life. It could be that you don't want to leave anything to chance. And I'll say it's good to be responsible. It's good to be thoughtful and thorough. But when you press that to the extreme, not leaving anything to chance might be your way of saying that I don't trust God with any of the unknowns in my life. That I want to control it, so I am the one who carries it. And when you realize that you can't carry it, well, then you worry instead of giving it to him. My friend, that can be a form of pride. So the key to casting your anxieties on God is actually humbling yourself under God. Here's Ed Welch again. He puts it like this. 
We can't cast our cares on God until we have recognized that he is God and I'm not. That he is God and I am his servant. And even greater than that, I have been elevated to the status of his child. So the Christians that Peter's writing to, you know, they actually have every reason to worry. They have every reason to be anxious. We think about what we've read so far in 1 Peter. The Christians Peter is writing to, they say that Jesus is the king of kings, not Caesar. And that gets these Christians labeled as rebels and traitors. The Christians that Peter is writing to, the women among them, they worship Jesus alone, not the gods of their unbelieving husbands. So that brings the accusation against them that they are sabotaging their marriage. The Christians that Peter is writing to, he says that they no longer participate in the licentious lifestyle that they used to. They get invitations from their neighbors and their friends, but they don't respond to them. That gets them called things like self-righteous prudes. So it would be natural for the Christians that Peter's writing to, for them to worry. For them to worry about losing status, worry about losing respect, worry about losing the approval of their family, worry about losing their friends, worry about losing their jobs, even worrying about losing their lives. They have every reason to worry. My friend, for you this morning, you have every reason to worry. You and I have every reason to worry. Don't you have a long list of what ifs? Don't you have a long list of uh, what if I, I can't work anymore and I can't pay my bills? What if I can't afford the type of future that I want for my kids or for myself? What if that problem, that one problem remains and I, I don't know how to address it and it won't go away? What if the one person in my life that I love won't forgive me and our relationship is never the same? What if the person I share the gospel with who I love rejects it? And what if they ask me questions and they reject me and I don't know how to answer their questions? What if the treatment for my disease doesn't work? What if I end up alone? What if the kids at the new school don't like me and I don't have any friends? What if the government and the culture grow increasingly hostile toward biblical Christianity? What if? With all this going on, friend, what should you do? Well, the book of 1 Peter tells you that you shouldn't compromise, that you shouldn't retaliate. What it tells you right here is that you should humble yourself and lay your worries at God's feet. My friend, isn't the Lord Jesus your model for this? Hasn't the Lord Jesus experienced a heavier weight of fear and anxiety than you and I will ever, ever will? You see, worry isn't automatically wrong. Jesus worried. You and I, we live in a scary place. We are weak people. The key, rather, is what you do with that worry. So remember your Savior. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross. Here he was with the prospect of the full weight of God's righteous anger against our sin being placed upon him. In his deepest agony, what did Jesus do? He humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. He cast his anxiety on his father and he prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And you know what? At the proper time, three days later, the father exalted him. So my friend, you have every reason to worry. But if you know and believe the gospel, God has given you more reasons to trust him. You see, the gospel shows you God's mighty hand that Peter talks about. 
That phrase, mighty hand, is a phrase used from the Old Testament. It's usually tied to God's act of delivering his people, especially in the Exodus. My friend, through the gospel, you can know God's mighty deliverance from a heart that is enslaved to sin. Through the gospel, you can know God's mighty deliverance from an eternity spent separated from him. You have every reason to worry, but God has given you more reasons to trust in him. He's given you the gospel. The gospel shows you God's wise control that Peter talks about. The gospel assures you, Galatians 4, 4, that just at the right proper time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the curse of the law. The gospel shows you God's wise timing and control over all things. 1 Corinthians 15, 4, Jesus was raised on the third day, not a minute too late, in fulfillment of the scriptures. The gospel assures you that God knows what he is doing and he is never running late. As one person puts it, uh, you and I, we stand at one station of the, tra- of the subway and we see just one train go and come. Whereas God, the gospel assures us that God sees all the trains and all the stations, controls them all and knows exactly where they're going and when. The gospel shows you that God cares for you. You have every reason to worry, but God gives you more reasons to trust in him. The gospel assures you that how Peter talks about God cares for you. The gospel reminds you that God isn't indifferent toward you. That God doesn't stand far off. That God has come near. That he is trustworthy. What does Romans 5, 8 say? That God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You have every reason to worry. God has given you more reasons to trust him. It reminds me of uh, Corrie ten Boom. I talked about her a few weeks ago. You know, throughout her stint at Ravensbrook Concentration Camp, she would pray something like this frequently. She would pray, Father, this is too heavy for me to carry. I need you to carry it. Oh, my friend, why don't you make that your own prayer? Maybe add 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 to it. Pray something like, Father, forgive me for always wanting to control everything in my life. Father, forgive me for always wanting to get my own way. Father, right now I come under your mighty hand that has saved me. Right now I remember, Father, that I should have nothing, but you have given me everything in Jesus. So, Father, help me to trust you. I have every reason to. Help me to trust that you care for me and help me to trust that you are wise and know what you're doing. Oh, my friend, would you make 1 Peter 5, 6, 7 your prayer? So as we journey on this hard road toward heaven, we should be marked by various virtues as we stand firm in God's grace. Secondly, we should be marked by faith. Look with me again at verses 8 and 9. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So once again, when you remember what the recipients of this letter were going through, it brings this instruction to life. So when you remember the people who received this letter were suffering and coming under increased scrutiny, it brings this instruction to life. This instruction reminds you, friend, that the hardest times in your life are when it's most important for you to keep your guard up. The hardest times in your life are when it's most important for you to stay clear-minded, disciplined, 
focused, undistracted. Something that happened to me this week reminded me of it. Uh, it was hot, really hot on Thursday afternoon. It's like 85 degrees, straight sun. So I was driving here, I pulled into the parking lot and I had my AC on full blast and the car was comfortable that way. But I turned off the car and then I realized that I forgot something. So even before I opened the door, after I turned off the car, within maybe five seconds, the heat took over the car again and it was suffocating. Friends, when the heat is on in your life, you have to keep the engine running or else the heat will take over. You have to stay clear-minded, sober-minded, and focused. Why? Because Satan is ready to seize the opportunity of your suffering. Satan is ready for it. When your what-if comes true, Satan is waiting for that time. Here's how he works. Satan wants to get you to think about God based on how you feel and what you see. Satan wants to get you to think about God based on how you feel and what you see and not based on what God says in his word. That is how Satan has always worked. You can hear him at the very beginning, right? Paraphrase it. You can hear him talking to Eve this way in the Garden of Eden. You'd say, Eve, just look at this fruit. Just take a look at it, Eve. What could possibly be wrong with that fruit? Eve, we're in a place that's called Eden. You know what Eden means, Eve? Eden literally means paradise. How could any fruit in paradise possibly be bad? There's no way that this fruit is not deliciously ripe. There's no way that this piece of fruit doesn't have the perfect combination of texture and juiciness and flavor. Eve, why wouldn't you enjoy this? Genesis 3.6 says that Eve took a bite when she saw that the tree was a delight to her eyes. Satan wants to get you to think about God based only on what you see and how you feel. He doesn't want you to think about God based on what God says. This is the heart of the junk that's going on around us, isn't it? And that heart's always been there. It's just come in different variations. Oh, what's going on around us is that, you know, what I see and how I feel, well, it has to be true then. No one can tell me otherwise. What I feel is more reliable and what more important than what God says. Oh, my friend, when you define truth and even you define God based only on your experience and on your feelings, well, my friend, disaster will result. It stems back all the way to Genesis 3. So during the hardest times in your life, Satan will try to get you to focus only on what you see and how you feel. And that's how he wants you to define God. And if you do that, if you, if you fall for Satan's trap, you will define God the opposite of 1 Peter 5, 6 to 7. When you think of God based only on what you see and how you feel, God won't be mighty, God will be weak. When you define God based only on what you see and how you feel, God won't be wise, he'll be aloof. When you define God based on what you see and how you feel, God won't be caring, God will be cruel. So my friend, on your journey toward heaven, one of the most important things that you can do is to ensure that you are thinking rightly, thinking biblically about God. That is among the most practical things you can do in your life. But the good news that Peter tells us is that this lion can be resisted. 
He can be resisted because he's already been defeated. As one commentator on this passage puts it, believers in Christ have no need to fear his bark as we will never be consumed by his bite. So how do you resist the devil, your adversary? How do you resist him? Peter doesn't give you a 12-step plan. Peter doesn't tell you, you know, guys, just try harder and it will work. Peter tells you to be firm in your faith. Peter's not talking about the measure of your faith. Peter's talking about the object of your faith, who you believe in. You resist the devil by relentlessly believing the truth about God. So if the devil fights with lies, my friend, what do you fight with? You fight with the truth. God's given you the right equipment for this battle. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So my friend, you can't resist the devil with a Bible that is frequently closed. So when you see the truth about God, that God is mighty and wise and cares for you, like even this passage says, when you see the truth about God, you can continue to trust God even under attack. Because you are not basing your view of God based on what you see or how you feel. You are basing your view of God based on what God says in his word. So my friend, how do you resist the devil? You relentlessly believe the truth about God and you believe this truth alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at what Peter says in verse nine. He says, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So just like you can't resist the Bible with a, uh, the devil with a closed Bible, you can't resist the devil in isolation. Makes me think of a show that Kate and I tried one episode of recently. Uh, it's a show that's called Wild Babies. Uh, and no, it's not human babies gone wild, though that might be interesting given our stage of life. Uh, wild Babies is about wild animals. Uh, the show is basically about how every kind of baby animal has a close encounter with death on a daily basis. And it's, so it's actually a really stressful show. <laughs> So one group of animals that they, uh, that they showed was a group of seals. Seals are sort of unique because their moms will leave uh, their babies for hours at a time. They'll go into the ocean, and meanwhile, the baby seals are just with the dads who just fight with one another. So the only hope that these baby seals have is if they stick together with the group. And there was one baby seal who just loved the wander off. And meanwhile, the camera pans to zoom in on the hungry hyena that is peering over the group. And this baby seal who wanders off just barely escaped its clutches. So my, the point is, friend, as a Christian, you need to stay close to the pack. You need to stay close to the herd, to the flock, whatever you want to call it. You need to stay close to the church. Because the animals that stray are the animals that get eaten. When you stick with the group, something happens to you. When you stick with the group, you can start no longer to view God based only on what you see and feel. You can start to look at the people around you. You might be going through a hard time, but when you look at the people around you, you can see God's mighty hand and his faithful care to others in your church and even others in the church around the world. So my friend, you should come to community group and see how God has sustained and grown your brothers and sisters. 
You should listen to something like Voice of the Martyrs podcast and hear how God cares for Christians around the world. My friends, fellowship with Christians, time of the word is how we resist the devil and continue to believe the truth about God. As we journey on the hard road to heaven, we should be marked by certain virtues as we stand firm in God's grace. Thirdly, we should live with hope. Look again at verses 10 and 11. It says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory or dominion forever and ever. Amen. Notice that verse 10 talks about what will happen in the future. It says, after you have suffered a little while. Isn't that word after beautifully reassuring? Christian, there will be an after to your suffering. Gospel 101, you can be sure that there will be an after to your suffering because Jesus suffered in your place. Because Jesus took the hell that you and I deserve on the cross. Oh, my friend, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, isn't someone who has done something like that worth trusting and believing and following If you haven't given your life to Jesus, let me tell you something. If you don't trust Jesus to take hell for you, I humbly say, according to the Bible, that there is hell awaiting you. I tremble to say that you read 1 Peter 5.10. If you don't trust in Jesus, there will be no after to your suffering. It will only continue and increase infinitely. If you don't believe me, consider the words of Jesus himself. John 3, 18. He says, whoever believes in me is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. My friend, today, would you look at the mighty and loving hand of God displayed at the cross? And would you turn to Jesus, the one who suffered in our place? If you haven't done that, would you talk to me about doing that, what that means? I'll just be standing at the back door afterwards. Verse 10 talks about what happens in the future. When this future comes, not only will our suffering be over, do you see that our suffering will seem short? I'm reminded of the book of Genesis when Jacob waited to marry his wife, Rachel. You think you have problems with your in-laws. You have no idea. Jacob's father-in-law made him work for him for 14 years before he would let him marry his daughter. But because of Jacob's love for Rachel, Genesis 29, 20 says, 14 years seemed to him, but a few days. His suffering was short. Verse 10 talks about the future. It says, God himself, God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. God's not subcontracting this out. God himself will do it. It reminds me of the rich young ruler. You might remember him. This guy comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus a question. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And us with our gospel lens on, we say, oh man, you've already asked the wrong question. There's nothing you can do. But as the conversation continues, this man is adamant. I've done enough to inherit eternal life. And so Jesus knows just the right way to pierce this man's heart. He says, okay, rich young ruler, go sell your stuff, follow me. And he doesn't take him up on it. Because Jesus knows something about this young man. He knows that for him, money was his God, not God himself. If only he knew the promise of 1 Peter 5, verse 10, 
you know, not all of us will have to lose all that we have for the sake of following Christ. But this verse tells us that whatever you lose for following Christ will be restored. This man, this rich young ruler didn't realize that he couldn't hold on to his riches. But if he let them go, he would receive something back far infinitely greater. You know, many Christians will get to heaven limping. Many Christians will get to heaven bruised and weak. This verse tells you that God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I wonder if you're like me, if you ever think about heaven and in some way are kind of scared and maybe even disappointed by the prospect of heaven. Maybe if you read a verse like Matthew twenty-two thirty, and that verse bothers you. It's the verse that says that, where Jesus says that in heaven, there will be no human marriage. Has that verse ever bothered you? 1 Peter 5.10 assures you, as one pastor put it, that in heaven, there is no subtraction of joy. There is only fulfilling addition. That in heaven, Christian, you will experience the kind of love for which you most deeply long forever. You will not have any subtraction of joy, only fulfilling addition. That's what 1 Peter 5.10 tells you. This is the future that we hope in. And you know what? God gives us what we need to be hopeful people who who still live in a hard world. Because hope for the future is like faith in the present. Hope is only so good as its object. And I've heard it explained like this. Let's say that you have to walk across a frozen lake. You can have strong faith. You can tell yourself, you know what? If I just believe hard enough, I can do anything. But if that ice is thin, I don't care how hard you believe. You are falling in. On the other hand, you might have weak faith. You might have faith even as small as a mustard seed. But if that ice is thick, it doesn't matter how small a faith you have. If you walk across it, it will hold you up. So do you see, our hope isn't thin It's impenetrable. Our hope is based on who God is and what God has done. Look at verse 10 again. Who God is, he is the God of all grace. All grace is from him. He is the fountain, the source, the wellspring of goodness and love. What God has done, he has called us already to his eternal glory in Christ. And my friend, God finishes what he starts. If he has called us, he will complete his work in us. If Christ purchased us, he won't return us. If he has promised it, he will keep it. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. But if this is who God is, if this is what God has done, if this is what God will do, then verse 11 must be true. To him belongs the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, as we journey on the hard road of heaven, we should be marked by certain virtues. And the last one we'll look at briefly comes at verse, from verses 12 to 14. We should live with love. That's what it looks like to stand firm in God's grace. Now, I'll admit it's kind of hard to encapsulate these last verses of 1 Peter. First, uh, Peter's doing a number of things here. He's giving somewhat of a housekeeping note it's likely that he commends Silvanus, who's also known as Silas, because Silvanus is the one who carried this letter to this group of Christians. So he wants these Christians to know, you guys can trust Silvanus when you see him. 
Peter also in this last, these last verses, he summarizes his letter like we talked about at the beginning. This is a grace of God, stand firm in it. Peter also gives final greetings from his church and his companions. So Babylon was a way to refer to the city of Rome. So in the Old Testament, Babylon became associated with the center of earthly power that was opposed to God. And in Peter's day, the center of earthly power opposed to God was the city of Rome. It's just maybe a little nugget that reminds you and me that we need churches in the hardest places. But the ending of Peter's letter is like the ending of so many other letters in the New Testament. As I look at verses 12 to 14, I can't get over the corporate nature of it. I'm not talking about business. I'm talking about togetherness. He talks about a kiss of love, peace to one another. Now, kiss of love is likely a customary greeting in that day and time. But there still should be love among Christians. You know, this is supposed to be a family. It's not supposed to be a collection of individuals who just happen to sit next to one another week by week. So friends, right here, this is telling you, God gives you what you need to live for him, to live as he calls you to live. God has given you other Christians. So Christian, brother, sister, open yourself up to the love God intends for you to receive from other Christians. Christian, brother and sister, would you take a couple steps closer away from the fringe of the church to linger a little bit, stay a while, to let people get to know you, to ask people to pray for you? Christian, brother and sister, vice versa, would you give the love that God intends you to give in order to help other Christians? Would you reach out to those who seem to be alone? those who do seem to be on the fringe? Would you contribute to our togetherness even when we're not gathered in this place? Here we are, last line of 1 Peter. Peter tells us that our love for one another comes from the peace we have in Christ. So living well on the journey toward heaven begins with faith in Christ crucified. That on the cross, Jesus secured our peace with God. He took what we deserved so that we would no longer be God's enemies, but God's friends, even God's children. On the cross, Jesus also secured our peace with one another so that human divisions no longer divide us because they are no longer what unite us. We aren't united by race. We aren't united by economic status. We aren't united by political affiliation. We are united in Christ. We are in the same family. So all these virtues, humility, faith, hope, love, they begin with the grace of God displayed in Christ at the cross. This path starts with grace and the path continues with grace. Rest assured that your Lord who saved you will give you all that you need to live for him as he brings you home. Let's pray. Dear God of all grace, by your mighty hand, would you expose and rid us of pride and instead replace it with a humble rest in you? Would you help us, dear Lord, to believe the truth about you? Would you lead those here who aren't believing the truth about you toward your true self, today, how you describe yourself in your word. 
Lord, would you help us? Give us grace to live with hope. To live with hope that you, the one who called us, will surely complete the work you've started. And God, in your grace, would you help us to live out with love for one another? Would you use us in each other's lives to help us endure, even endure suffering, because we know that it's worth it, that Jesus is the treasure beyond all measure. We pray in his name. Amen.